attention is the number one asset. We will do what the consumer thing happens, but when the going gets tough, the cash is of a business is the oxygen. You can be the most ideological, epic, awesome person, and by the way, you know this, this is the biggest insight. The humans are saying this, but what happens when the humans themselves act differently when the going gets tough? Vayner Nation, how are you? Another exciting episode of the Gary Vee Audio Experience with, uh, with a man that um, some of you already know and many will discover. Uh, and I think this conversation is gonna go quite well. We just laughed, we had one second before we went on. I said, Alan, anything you wanna talk about? He goes, whatever you wanna talk about. I'm like, good, this is gonna be a great, uh, we're gonna be able to do a lot. Alan Murray, uh, why don't you, uh, I always like to let the guests take the first minute or two to create the context with the audience. I always uh, wanna make sure that they can position uh, the context the way they want. So why don't you fire away and tell the Vayner Nation a little bit about who you are and yourself and your career, and then we'll go into it. Well, I'm a lifelong journalist and also to some degree a lifelong entrepreneur. I started my first newspaper when I was nine years old. Uh, I stayed in, you know, edited my co- my high school newspaper, college newspaper, worked many years at the Wall Street Journal, ran the Washington Bureau, uh, uh, did a few years uh, 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 doing a show at CNBC, uh, then came to Fortune and I'm now the CEO of Fortune. So it's a it's a fairly consistent storyline. It's it it's not too, uh, it, it, it's not too confusing. I, I I I suspect the reason I'm here, Gary. You'd have to tell me that, but I suspect the reason I'm here is because of a book I've written recently called Tomorrow's Capitalist. That yes. was my attempt to try and get my head around what was going on, why I was hearing more and more business leaders talk more directly and intentionally about their impact on society. Something very different was going on in the conversations I was having with CEOs, and the book was my attempt to understand it and explain it. So let's let's just go there. You know, obviously, when you think about the Wall Street Journal, when did you start at the Journal? Let's start, this actually good oh, I, I, I started at the Journal in 1983. Perfect, that's even, that's exactly what I was hoping for so everybody can understand where I'm going with this. In 1983, at the Wall Street Journal, how many CEOs running those Fortune 500 companies even nuanced the concept of something that their Coca-Cola or IBM or Chevy had impact on the world? Yeah. Relatively few. I mean, there were sort of some cases out there that you could point to, I think, of you know, the history of a company a company like Cummins Engine that was such so inherently a part of yeah. its community. Yeah. But it was, uh, uh, look, we were in the thralls of Milton Friedman, the great economist who said the social responsibility of business is to make a profit. Uh, yeah. And I think that was in the 1980s, very much the reigning frame do of you, mind. Do you think that there's a danger that if it goes so the opposite way of that POV that these things don't become sustainable. And I'll tell you where I'm going with that question. Yeah, yeah. My great obsession right now in America, and I think about it globally, but obviously America is who it is in the scheme of capitalism and societal ambition, that as America goes more red, more blue, you know, we're, we're pulling, that the answer is purple. It's the blend of the two and that you know, I, for example, have incredible ambition and hopes, and I love being an entrepreneur, 
but I genuinely do like civility and kindness. And I, yeah. I, think, I think it's very easy to build a business that is profitable and can be nice and a positive impact. But I also believe that there's not a business on earth, nor is there a human on earth that doesn't have shortcomings in some social framework. Absolutely. No question. And, and that if we ask businesses to be great at everything, that we could go too far and, and kind of lose our collective way. But, uh, it, it's a fair concern and, and, and we should talk about it. And I appreciate the fact you put it in a political context, but let me just take it out of the political context for a Please. second. Please. Let me give you another context for what Please. I think is going on. You know, there was a, 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 some research done a few years ago about how, how are businesses creating, how do businesses create value? And they looked at the Fortune 500 in uh, the 1970s, and, and they looked at the balance sheets and said, where's the value coming from at these corporations? And what you saw in the 1970s was more than 80% of the value came from physical stuff. It was stuff. plant, it was equipment, it was oil in the ground, it was inventory on the shelves, it was physical things that you needed financial capital to, to buy and build. Yes. If you do the exact same exercise today, what you'll find is more than 85% of the value of Fortune 500 companies is coming from intangibles. It's coming from intellectual property. It's coming from the brand value with the consumer, all of, all of which are things that aren't tied to physical, so much to physical stuff or financial capital. They're tied to people. They're tied to human beings. They're tied to your employees that walk in and out the door and your, your customers who have a sense of brand loyalty for you. I mean, this is this is your business, Gary. You understand this. So I think what's really going on here is not a politicization of business. It's a human humanization, if that's a yes. word. Yeah, yeah. Of right. business that that, you know, we I have a colleague, uh, Jeff Colvin, who wrote a great book called Humans Are Underrated. And one of the things he said in the book is. We spent the 20th century trying to make people into better machines. They were cogs in the great in the great factory, you know, and yep. they were supposed to do their role to make the machine work better. Yep. In the 21st century, the machines are taking care of themselves. Thank you very much. We need yep. people to be better people. And so all of these things that I'm writing about and talking about and the increased focus on contribution to society is much more about that than it is about politics per se. Talk to me about things that are in the water that challenge us humans to be better. For instance, something I'm obsessed with, I'm so pumped I get to ask you this. Yeah. The notion that nice guys finish last. When in the context of the combo you and I are having right now, I'm fascinated by that because yeah. I have a lot of empathy for the women and men in business that I interact with all the time that don't even realize that that's the thing that they believe that's leading to their concern of overleading with their emotional intelligence or their heart. And thoughts on that, if I throw that out. Oh my God, I, I, well look, I, I think in some ways that's the uh, one of the biggest changes. You just used, look, we've already established that I've been doing this stuff for four decades, right? <laughs> yes, sir. So I've seen quite a lot of this. Yes. But you just used a word, empathy, that I can tell you for three and a half decades of covering business, I never heard a business leader use. <laughs> just did not happen. And 
I just got off a, a, a phone call with a, a dozen CEOs who were talking about wellness in the workplace, and I heard the word 15 times in the course of one hour. I, I don't think that's just a semantic change. I think that's a dramatic change in the way that business leaders think about their uh, ab about their jobs. Uh, do, you, do you believe the operators that believe in merit, com competition, um, tenacity, all things I believe in, by the way? Yeah, of course. Uh, get over concerned when they hear empathy and these things that 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 that, that they struggle with balancing the two because they don't realize it's an and versus an or. Is that your take? I got to tell you, and maybe it's the maybe it's the CEOs I hang out with. You know, I've spent a lot of time on this topic over the last five years, and so maybe the the people I'm hearing from are a self-selected group, but I don't hear that anymore. You know, I think that would probably have been true if you were talking to Jack Welch and remember sure. that was only 20 years ago. That was sure. only 20 years ago. But man, I don't hear it. You know, one of the one of the uh, most amazing corporate statements that happened during the pandemic came from the CEO of Marriott, um, Arnie Sorensen, yep. who when it when it became clear that his business was going to drop by 95 percent. Or more. I mean, think about that. It's just people weren't in in, in the hotels, and and so the the company didn't have the financial wherewithal to keep everybody employed. And he made a Twitter message. You can search this on Twitter uh, to send to his employees uh, to explain why he was furloughing so many of them. Uh, it just so happened that at the same time he was making that message, he personally was suffering from very severe cancer, which subsequently killed him. And he, you know, was showing the effects of the cancer treatment. Uh, but my God, it's a two minute video. I was in tears by the time the thing was over. I mean, this is a CEO telling his workforce that their jobs have disappeared. Um but the but the way he did it, the the empath, you know, the way he explained it to him, it was sort of a masterpiece of transparency and vulnerability and empathy and all the things that the Jack Welch's of the world 20 years ago would never dreamed of doing. So yeah. it was, you know, a dramatic illustration of the of how times have changed. What do you think are the mass from your perspective, spending so much time, what do you think are the massive benefits? And what do you think are the changes that will become new challenges because you know when you have these kind of seismic shifts you know this is all this is all wonderful i mean you're talking to somebody who started a wine brand called empathy long, <laughs> you know like i've been on this train for a long time because i'm very much my mother's son and she was built on incredible emotional intelligence and compassion and i'm very proud of how i've operated on the yeah. flip side recessions that are aggressive and sustained, America losing its pedestal of being the economic dominant player. You know, do you believe that this is potentially a trend in the maturity of a superpower that when challenged um, may have a tough time finding its balance in some of this because as organizations find their way I can tell you as one that is built, so my company's code word internally is the honey empire. Honey over vinegar, but we're building an empire. We have a thousand plus 27 and under year olds. 
So Gary. The thing I, I'll finish this and this, I'm dying in your take. The thing I spend time on is how do I make this the greatest from all those emotional frameworks? And how do I also not create entitlement that creates the vulnerability of the task at hand? And what I, for me, I'm competent because I don't have a board. I'm not a publicly traded company. And I'm in my most joyous when the people around me are enjoying. But I have empathy for people that are gonna have to deal with a public board, a public company, competition. And so when the going gets tough, I'm worried that they may deviate from words like empathy to words like, we've got to compete. Maybe, but here's what's so interesting about what's happening. First of all, let me say, you don't ask simple questions. <laughs> That's a compliment, right? That is a compliment, yeah. So, um, so in fact, if you want to, you know, like go refill your Starbucks uh, cup, it may take a <laughs> while. I'll try and come. I'll try and I'll try and keep my answer concise. No, take your time because I think the depth is interesting, and I think you have a great perspective. Yeah. So I'm excited. So, so you asked about the good part of this, and then you ask about the parts that I think aren't may not be sustainable, and 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 I'm gonna. It, I'm going to put it in a little bit less of a political context than you did and sort of just focus on business per se. Please. The good part is, you know, things like climate and things like diversity, equity, and inclusion. I think five years ago, most business leaders thought, oh, those are important, but they're kind of nice to do's. You know, they're like corporate social responsibility. I should do it because I'm a good person. Yes. What's happened in the last two years that's so fascinating is it has become a business imperative. Um, uh, you know, start with climate. Uh, I had this fascinating conversation with Soren Skoo, who is the CEO of, uh, of Moller Maersk that runs the big shipping uh, ships all over the world. And, and he has made this massive investment in hydrogen power using uh, wind power in the North Sea. It is not economic. There is no ec- current economic rationale for making the investment he made. And so I said, why'd you do it? Why are you spending all this money on something that is just, there's no way that's going to get close to the price of fossil fuel. And he said, I did it because every day I get a call from a customer who says, I just made this net zero climate commitment that requires me to get the carbon emissions out of my supply chain, and you're my supply chain. If you don't figure out how to operate your ships uh, without uh, carbon emissions, I can't meet my goal. And so there's this kind of reinforcing thing going on that has made it no longer just a good thing, but a business imperative. Think about GM. I mean, Mary Barra, the CEO of GM, made this extraordinary commitment in January of last year. She's only going to make electric cars by 2035. Yep. And, and that's not just pie in the sky commitment. I mean, she has to start investing against that commitment. She had to start the day she made the commitment. Um, what, so did she do it because she thought it was the right thing to do for the environment? Yes. But did she also do it because she was afraid Tesla was going to take her business away from her? Yes. So so it, it, it's become a business imperative. Couldn't agree more. And, and just and just one other thing to, before I finish it, because you you talked about diversity and equity and inclusion. Same thing. 
we are in a massive battle for talent that most CEOs I talk to don't think is going to go away, even with a recession. And so if you're not figuring out how you create new pipelines for dis- you know, for people who've been overlooked to bring them into the workforce, you're, you're probably not going to win the talent war. Alan, are you telling me that in the last hundred days, the CEOs that you're talking to do not feel that there's going to be a correction in the job market if the recession keeps going in the direction that it's going? We, we just did a survey, just fresh out of the field, that shows that more than two-thirds of CEOs think there's going to be a recession, but then you ask them, what is the single biggest challenge you face? And you know what it is? It's not the recession. It's talent. So yes, I I mean, will there be a correction? Maybe, but we've never had a moment where we are talking about recession and we're looking at three and a half percent unemployment at the same time. It's well, never, that, never happened before. It's going to be interesting because what's the dynamic that don't pe- people don't see is that the internet has created so many options for people to make six figures a year do it with their side hustles that the fragmentation of the long tail of the economics is very real. The question will become things like, hey, Gary, I don't need to get a job because I'm selling things on Amazon and making 150K a year, but if Amazon has to raise their fees because of a recession, does that become viable? Like where the trickle down economics, all these influencers, you can imagine my world. Gary, I make 200,000 a year in brand deals. I don't need to get a job. Well, if the marketing budgets go into a different, you know, so it's gonna be, there's so many macro trends that are happening that may be affected in the micro with a recession that will be an interesting game to see play out. And what's happening on the other side of that equation, again, this is the dozen CEOs I was just on the line with, Uh, this is what they were talking about. What's happening on the other side of that equation is companies are just getting better at figuring out what they have to do to attract, retain, engage, excite people to come and work for them. You know, it's just becoming, they're, they're focusing intentionally on how do I make this a better experience? Because if I don't make it a better experience, I'm not gonna get the people I need. I have such double feelings right now. I am so excited that a um, observer of your pedigree and social commentator to the sector I've loved. I followed business like it was sports my whole life. I, I'm pinching myself that this is the conversation we're having. If you told me, if you told 1998 Gary, who came into his dad's liquor store with objective number one is to be more kind to our employees that stocked our shelves, that this would be a 2022 conversation, I would pinch myself out of happiness. On the flip side, as 2022 Gary, who's watched 2020 to 2022 and has interacts daily with Fortune 500 CEOs and CMOs, the disconnect between the ambition of the ivory tower and the execution in the trenches is such a yeah. grand yeah. gap right now that I'm curious about the speed in which these conversations you're having become actually executable. Yeah, and I, I, I thank you for taking me back because I never answered the, your question of what are the limits of this? Where, where does look? This doesn't mean this is not greed is dead. You know, this is not corruption is over. This is not. I mean, look, I spent, uh, I spent a couple of years as the chief content officer for Time Inc. when there was still a Time Inc. before it yes. went under. Yes. Uh, so, and I was in the C-suite of that company when it was under attack from 
uh, shareholder activists who wanted it to produce more money each quarter. Yep. And, and what you see when you're in that position is there are hundreds of bad things you can do. When I say bad, it's bad for your employees. It's bad for the your customers. It's bad for the environment. Environment may be uh, bad for the long-term health of the, of the company, but there are hundreds of bad things you can do that will make you money in that quarter. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, and, and, and when you got a shareholder activist breathing, breathing down your throat, you know, I see now Mark Benioff has one, uh, right? Yeah, say, we want more money next quarter. You, know, you, stop, got, you, got, yeah. you got to hold them up. Stop all this, all this fluffy talk. So no question there are a bunch of short-term money-based pressures that can push companies to do bad things. And companies will continue to succumb to those pressures. But, but what I'm saying is, as somebody who has watched this for four decades, there is a set of countervailing pressures in place yes. that are causing more and more corporate leaders to take a much more serious look at their social impact and at the long-term impact of their companies. And I, I don't think that's a silver bullet or solves all our problems, but I think it's a good thing. I do, too. I, I think it's a great thing because back, and again, I'm actually not using politics. I just think it's so easy for people to grasp given the macro. I, let's use a seesaw. You don't have to use red and blue. Let's use a seesaw. To your point, if the seesaw is balanced left to right, and this is not about what you're saying, which excites the shit out of me personally, is this is not seesaw going right to left. This is the seesaw is going flat. Yeah. And the reason the reason I reject, I mean, they're there, you know, look, I worked many, many years at The Wall Street Journal. I know the folks on the editorial page very well. Um, uh, they've been leading the attack against woke CEOs and, you know, saying that this is all a bunch of uh, misguided business leaders trying to pay, play footsie with Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren or something like that. The reason I think that's so misguided. Well, let, let me use an example to make the case. Uh, two weeks ago, I was down in Bentonville, Arkansas with <laughs> Doug McMillan. Uh, Doug McMillan is CEO of Walmart, has to be about as, you know, that has to be about as red of a CEO in as red of a company that you can imagine. I mean, he grew up in Arkansas. His first job was loading trucks at yep. Walmart. The company serves red America, right? That's who their employees are. That's who their customers are. But he has said, we want this company to become the first truly regenerative company. Sounds like something Mark Benioff would say. Oh, and, yeah. and, and, and he has challenged his suppliers to get a gigaton of carbon emissions out of the environment. And, and you know how, how, uh, how Walmart influences yeah, yeah. suppliers. And he has said, and he's changed the way, you know, Sam Walton, great businessman that he was, I'm pretty sure thought of employees as an input and his job was to get the price of that input as low as he could. So pay the absolute lowest wages. Doug McMillan has completely changed the way wages are set. We like to pay better wages. I, I tell my friends all the time that take it to the extremes. I'm with you. To me, this is not about that. To me, this is about common sense. To me, yeah. this is not about politics. This is consumer centricality. What you're referring to is if the humans are 85% of the thing, Correct. and this is what humans feel, we're gonna do what the humans feel, because that's the customer. Gotta, yeah, I'm yeah. fully on board. I think what's gonna be most interesting to me 
because I'm fully on board and so I wanted you here and I, I like this middle, the seesaw we'll use instead of the red blue, um, is that we will do what the consumer thing happens but when the going gets tough, the cash is of a business is the oxygen. You can be the most ideological, epic, awesome person. And by the way, you know this, this is the biggest insight. The humans are saying this, but what happens when the humans themselves act differently when the going gets tough? That's where I'm, you know, I get it. I'm, I care, I'm a very emotionally charged human. I kind of by default care about what everybody cares about. Like, like it's just kind of like my way. Um, Look, look, I, I, I totally thought when the pandemic hit and it became clear that the economy was going to go down into a recession, uh, and, and that was about a year after the business roundtable had issued its kind of stakeholder governance statement. I totally thought, based on past experience, all of this stakeholder capitalism stuff was going to go away, that well, all these social it, concerns would be. Well, guess what? It would have if we didn't print money. Well, maybe, that but, but it, but it no, didn't no. go away. It increased. It, it no, went up. Because we haven't felt it yet. That no. becomes the fun debate, right? Like, you know this. Like, if we don't print that money, everything's different. You have an yeah. entire generation of under 30. This is important. I think you'll like this, Alan. I, Because I'm in love with my employees, and I talk to them all the time. And I have all these 27, 29-year-old employees. Like, you know, Gary, really believe in what you're saying. I'm trying to be thoughtful with my money. They're like, you know, COVID, you know, I'm so glad I got to go through COVID. It was tough. I'm like, you got checks in the mail. <laughs> what do you mean tough? This wasn't, you know, and then I have all these 35 yeah. year olds who went through 2008 and they're I'm watching the 35 year olds talk to the 25 year olds in my office is my favorite because the 25 year old thinks COVID was what 2008 was and it surely wasn't. You had people sitting at home getting paid more to be at home than work. That, that's all. That's a fair point. And when the money goes away, you can't spend the money. No question about that. that that's what my whole point is. I'll tell you where my energy is coming from. If anybody's confused listening, I'm so into what Alan is saying that I'm hoping and praying because I do sense that it might get a little tough here for a little bit for real. Yep. And I'm hoping we don't lose our way. Yeah. I, and I hope you're right. Here's what I'm hearing from the best companies. What I hear from the best companies is, you know, why I was one business leader the other day quoted the uh, Formula One race car driver who said, I can't pass 15 cars in the sun, but I can pass 15 cars when it's raining. Mm. And what I'm, what yeah. I'm hearing business leaders saying is recession is when you really have to prove your stuff. If we believe our differentiator in the future is going to be commitment to the environment and commitment to people, then we have to hold on and stick to it and maybe even double down on it in the tough times in order to win the future. Because if we don't do that, somebody else will and they'll get ahead of us. So there's a sense that this has become part of the competitive dynamic of business. Not only is there a sense, you're actively talking to somebody who for the last 120 days has told his 50 direct reports that the next two years are gonna be the biggest growth maybe in my career because we've committed to people for a decade and it's gonna matter now. There you go. There so, you go. And I salute you for it. I salute you for it, Gary. And by the way, I tell people all the time, it's not because I'm Mother Teresa or altruistic. It's the purple. It's the it's there the flat, go. it's the flat seesaw. It's both now matter. It's an and game. It's not or our friends to the to the left or right or purple or blue, like where they get concerned is they live in a world of or. They think it's all gonna go to this. It's not. It's the yeah. about the middle. 
and Gary, if I can just say one more thing, I mean, when I when I started my career, biz, the business world defined the right. Now I'm going to politics. Yeah. The business world defined the right wing of the spectrum, but what's happened in our system? Politics has gotten broken. Uh, uh, both the left and the right are, are no longer about solving problems. They're just about gaining political advantage in the next election. Business people have to solve problems. You can't That's be a right. successful business person if you don't solve problems. So by definition, you're purple because the the, the red right. and the blue are not solving problems. Brother, that couldn't be a better way to end this. I believe that there is a real chance for the business community to play that purple role in a meaningful, real way over the next three decades. And it's gonna be fun to watch if that's true or not, or how, why or not. But I really appreciate discussion. I have a feeling a lot of people got a lot of value from it. I hope you enjoyed it, my friend. Great fun, thank you for having me. And by the way, Vayner Nation, I, I know because all the authors email me three, four weeks later that this is a obnoxiously big book buying community. <laughs> if you if you enjoyed this, th- th- Alan's absolutely right. I, you know, it's funny. I don't consume information through through long book form, but I write them and I advocate for them because ninety percent of you listening right now do. And I think Alan's got something for you. So one more time, Alan, so they can all go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble or local bookstore. What's the name of the book? One more time. Tomorrow's Capitalist, My Search for the Soul of Business, and All the Profits Go to Fortune. So uh, if you, uh, uh, you can support good journalism in the process. My friend, I wish you nothing but health and happiness. Thank you, Gary. Cheers. Great to be with you.